Yes, what a wonderful story, the story of Acts, it blows my mind. Of all the stories, of all the books in the Bible, this one is full of action. It's full of uh, surprises. It's, it's, it's just an awesome story. I love story. I think that uh, all of us are drawn to story and good stories. I love great movies, even though because I'm a dad, I see like almost only kid movies. Pray for me. Uh, Lori and I actually had a date this past week, and we actually got to go see a, well, we went to see kind of a kid movie. I don't, it's, I don't know what's wrong with us. But this story of Acts is amazing. It's amazing, but I got to tell you, we started it a while back, didn't we? A few months back, we started this story, and uh, so I don't know if you've ever been reading a book, and you got through part of it, and then you kind of had to put it down for a while, or maybe, maybe a more uh, common thing is you've been DVRing a show or, or watching a show on Netflix or whatever, and you've watched a lot of it, but then you put it aside for a while, and you, to go back and finish it, you feel like you need to step back at least into that at last episode. Or you need to kind of reread those chapters. You know what I'm talking about? Well, that's what we're doing today. Uh, for several weeks, we went through the book of Acts, chapters 1 through 3. And it was a great time. And then we kind of got into our replanting conversation about changing from Temple to South City. And we took a break in there where we just prayed and we met together in each other's homes. And we lived out sort of this Acts 2, 42 through 47 season of our church. And it was beautiful. And it was, it was awesome, but uh, we felt led to pray and to preach through a different story and different sections of, of Scripture, and so we did that. As we've done that, um, we wanted to come back to this book, because I don't know that there's a better story or a better Scripture for a young church to look at. This is the beginning of the church, and this is truly the blueprint of what God's heart was for the church, and I, and I pray not just that our church take a good look at, at Acts as the uh, blueprint for the church that the great church, the big C church, would somehow make our way back to what the Acts church looked like in some way. Uh, so if you're opening your Bible this morning, well, obviously we have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. These are the gospel accounts of the story of Jesus, of his life. And we see in those accounts, we see his, his life, obviously, his death, his burial, his resurrection, so we see all this take place. Well, Acts happens right after this. This is kind of chronological. Right after we see his death, burial, resurrection, Jesus is alive. He's alive, hallelujah, right? And he shows himself to uh, the disciples and hundreds of people. This is where we're at. If you're opening your Bible to the book of Acts, it might even say the Acts of the Apostles. Does your, your Bible might say that. But the, re the better title for this book is really the acts of the Holy Spirit, because he is so active in this book. He's so active in this book. And so we're going to jump back into it. Like I said, Jesus begins to show himself to his disciples. But it's not just his disciples that he's proven that he's risen. He shows himself to hundreds of people, his resurrected body, to hundreds of people. And so you want proof? Well, there you go. He shows himself to the disciples, but listen, even some of the disciples were struggling in their mind, like many of you might be, saying, how is this possible? I, 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 I lived with him, I knew him, and then I saw him die. I saw, I saw him dead. And not just dead, a cruel death. I saw him. And you're telling me 
he's alive? Thomas, you remember the story of Thomas. He, he just couldn't believe it. He said, no, I don't believe it, guys. I, I love you guys. I trust you, but I, I can't believe it. And so I tell you what, when Jesus shows up and shows me his, the holes in his hands and feet, that's when I'll believe. And what does Jesus do? He just walks into the room without opening the door, doesn't he? He just shows up. And he says, Thomas. He didn't go, like, hey, Thomas. You know, he, I think in loving ways, he said, Thomas, you needed to see certain things? He said, come see. He said, touch the holes in my hands. He said, Thomas, come here. Look at my feet, the holes in my feet. Put your hand in my side and see that this is me, that I, I, I'm alive. Thomas sees and worships. The disciples see and it changes their lives and our lives forever. Some people still don't believe. They go, okay, yeah. So he, we see in Scripture that he shows himself to the disciples after he's been resurrected. He shows himself to hundreds of people. Okay, but we just still can't believe. Well, let, me, let me just say this to you or to your friends who don't believe. You may not believe or your friends or family may struggle with believing that there is a resurrected Jesus. But I'll, I'll, I'll tell you this. Be sure of this one thing this morning. The disciples believed he was alive. There's no question about it. They believed he was a resurrected Jesus. How do you know that, Pastor? I mean, why, why do you say that? What's, come on, show me. Well, let's, let's take a look at this. We know that nearly every single disciple of Jesus was martyred. Some of the story was in our opener just then. They were willing to be murdered, carrying to the grave the proof that Jesus was alive, that he was real, that he was who he said he was. So you know what? These men had to have devised some crazy scheme where they're all together in this, un, like, a deception the world has never seen. They had to be crazy. Or they had to be completely convinced that Jesus was alive. This is how I know. Scripture tells us, we just heard on here, that Stephen was the first martyr. Scripture tells us that after Stephen, uh, James, the son of Zebedee, was the first to die by the sword. History and legend tells us from others. They mention one in our opener. Uh, Paul was beheaded because of the mission and the preaching that he was doing. Peter was crucified upside down. Andrew was crucified after going to Turkey and Greece. Thomas was run through with spears after going to Syria and India. Philip was on mission in North, North, northern Africa and was cruelly put to death by a Roman proconsul because his wife had come to Jesus. And so her husband put Philip to death. Matthew was on mission in Persia and Ethiopia and he was stabbed to death. Bartholomew traveled to India, Armenia, Ethiopia, southern Arabia, and there were different accounts of how he was martyred. But make no mistake, he was martyred. James, son of Alphaeus, is said to have gone to Syria where Josephus... The, the great Jewish historian records that he was stoned and clubbed to death. Simon the Zealot went to Persia and he was killed there. Matthias, remember Matthias? We'll talk about him again in just a second. We learned about Matthias in Acts 1. He's the guy that replaces Judas. He wasn't just a substitute. Evidently, he believed it with all of his heart, life, and death. Because the story is that Matthias, the guy who replaced Jesus, Judas, went to Syria with Andrew and he was burned to death. 
And of course, we know that history says John was believed to have died of an old age after he had been exiled in the Isle of Patmos. There's also a story that John was boiled in oil, but he lived. He was willing to suffer, and I believe he would have been willing to die along with his brothers. This is not just some crazy scheme. They were convinced, and they took their conviction and their commitment to the grave. Are you willing to die for Jesus? I, I you know, a few years ago, if you'd asked me that question, I would just, before you even got it out of your mouth, I would have said yes. And then I went to India for a while. And I was right on the, India, the border of India and Pakistan, and I actually, my heart just kept asking this question over and over. Would you die for Jesus? And we would see armed regiments of guards walking by and looking in the cars, and I just thought, Lord, this is as close, I think, as I've ever been to, and they had kidnappings of Christians all the time and killings of Christians. And I remember asking myself, Drew, <laughs> it might get real while you're here, and you might have to answer that question with your life. Are you willing to die for Jesus? And for the first time in my life, I came to the place where it was a really scary question. I wasn't asked that question. And my hope is that I would have said yes. I don't want to get too far ahead in our story. All these examples of martyrs and deaths, they kind of happen during and after the book of Acts. So I want to pull it back just a little bit, but I wanted to show you they believe, don't they? Because it's true. They were being obedient to go Jesus said in Matthew 28, go right into all the world, making disciples, baptizing them, teaching them all the things I've taught you, and I will be with you even to the ends of the earth. And so we see them being obedient to the great commission of Jesus. That's what we see. And they give their lives to this story, to this truth. So let's jump back into it if we can. Chapter 1 of Acts. We're not going to read through this. We've read through every verse in the first, chapter, the first three chapters, but I just want to bring out some highlights to you. But I would encourage you to do this. Listen, as, you, um, as we get back into this series, go back and start with us and read these chapters, Acts 1 through 4, and you'll be ready for next week, okay? But also, on our website, I've asked Paul to put all of our Acts messages on the website, southcity.org. So if you're interested in listening to the messages from the first three three chapters of Acts. Please go back and check out the website, and you can hear those messages, okay, after today. So chapter one, what are the things that we see in chapter one that stand out to us? Well, the first thing is the thing I've already mentioned. Jesus has been resurrected, and he's showing his resurrected body to his disciples and, and to everyone who would see him. Hundreds of people, scripture says. And so as he's done that, now this is so interesting. It says he's explaining scriptures to the disciples. Now, will you wrap your brain around that with me just for a second? The Son of God, the Bible calls him the author. The author and perfecter of our faith, of our life, of Scripture. Creator of the world. The author. Everything created by him and for him. He holds all things together in his resurrected body. He's now sitting down with the disciples and other disciples explaining things of Scripture. Can you imagine? I, I, just, I just can't imagine. I would have just been staring at him. Like, is this happening right now? He explains Scripture, which is another reason why they would be willing 
to give their lives because nothing mattered more than the truth. And the truth wasn't just a set of facts. The truth was a person sitting in front of them. And his name was Jesus. He tells them of the coming Holy Spirit. And he tells them just to wait. Hey, guys, just wait a few days. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. Right? Just wait. And we know the church at this time, it, it wasn't very big. It was about 120 people. And you know what I think is interesting this morning, South City? That's about how big you are. I just think that's neat. Last Sunday we had an awesome service. We had, a, we had one of our biggest services. 185 people here last week with all of our friends from the soccer teams. But our, our kind of normal number right, right now is between 115 and 125, somewhere around. It's the same kind of size as the early church in chapter 1. And you know what God did in chapter 1 in the church? He filled the church with his Holy Spirit. And they begin to love each other like the world has never seen. And God began to grow the church. And I believe he's going to do that in us. Do you? The main verse of uh, Acts is this. It's Acts 1.8. It's not, it's not just Acts 1 that's the main verse. It's the main verse of the whole book. I want us to look at it this morning as our first scripture that we look at. This is Acts 1.8 out of the uh, English Standard Bible, it says this, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. When the Spirit comes upon you, you'll be my witnesses here and there and everywhere. I want to make a comment about this, this scripture. Now, listen, many of us are parents. When we go on trips, or when we just even go out for the evening, you know when you sit down with the kids before you leave, you give them some instructions, and right before you walk out the door, what, what, you give them the most important instruction, right? Hey, look, and I tell my kids, I hold them in the face, say, when they're going to a sleepover, and listen, you know, that's when the moment, like, dot, 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 do this. If you're going to do anything, do this. You know what I'm talking about? This is what's happening right here. This is the last thing Jesus says before he ascends into heaven. It's like him taking the disciples by the face and going, listen, guys, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you'll be my witnesses. And you'll actually be able to do what I told you to do in Matthew 28. Go into all the world. Make disciples. Baptize them. Teach them all the things I've taught you and that I will be with you. This is a big deal. This is a big instruction from Jesus. He made it clear that we are to go and to fulfill this commission, this commandment to go. And now he's saying, this is how you will go with the power of the Holy Spirit. I remember when I was in India, there was a day we had been, do, we'd been going in different villages and filming and, and doing ministry in places, and there was just kind of a, an afternoon or something set aside where we'd just rested. We were all exhausted. And I couldn't rest. My heart was broken. I, I literally remember sitting in this apartment place and just weeping and praying. And my heart goes back to that moment because I remember just kind of saying, God, there's so many people here 
who don't know you. It feels so overwhelming to me. How can we tell this many people about Jesus? How can we make a difference in the darkness in this place? I know you felt that, Brother Jerry. You can drive down the street in our town. You can see church here and church there and church here and church there. You can't see that in India. Instead, you see idol here and idol there and scary idol here and scary temple there and none of it has to do with Jesus. None of it is honoring Him. And you feel in your soul the lostness of that place and every place that doesn't know Jesus. And the Holy Spirit and His kindness to me in that day, He just whispered to me, go and make disciples. Teaching them all the things I've taught you. Baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And I will be with you. I just remembered, I'm not sitting here alone. This is not my job to do all this. I'm just to be obedient. God's to make the way. He is with us. We never have to do it alone. The Spirit of God goes with us. The power of God empowers us. We just have to go. So here's the next thing that happens. Disciples are standing around. Jesus gives this imperative and, and this explanation. This is the power that you'll be able to do this commission. And then something really crazy begins to happen. I mean, I've never seen it happen before, right? He just kind of begins to levitate. <laughs> he just begins to, to, I don't think there was music, but he just begins to lift up off the ground. And I can see the guys like looking like, this is cool, but what's going on? And he just begins to keep going. Keep going, keep going. And then he goes into the clouds. They can't see him anymore. And like you and I, they're standing around looking in the clouds going, where's Jesus? Like, what? What just happened? Is he coming back? What? And we, we see in Scripture that there are two angels among these disciples. And they go, what are you looking for? What, what's going on? And the guys were like, what? You know, what? He, he said, Jesus said to go. <laughs> so get busy. Go, get to work. And by the way, guys, he's going to come back in the same way he just left. He just, he just disappeared in the clouds. He's going to come again in the clouds. You're going to see it that same way. The disciples are trying to figure this out, but luckily they begin to walk away and get to work. And we see at the end of chapter 1 that they have some housekeeping things to do, right? They have to replace Judas, and they replace Judas with this disciple named Matthias who ultimately gives his life for the gospel of Jesus. What are the things we learn from chapter one? I think these are the, the few things that we learn at, at least. We learn that Jesus' resurrection is real. That his resurrected body is real. And he proved it. Right? And the death of his followers proves it still. He has a plan for his church. His plan for us is to take the gospel of Jesus to the ends of the earth. That's his plan. He told us to go. We need to be obedient. He's empowered us with his Holy Spirit to go do it. And that's how we'll do it. We just have to obey. And if we learn anything from those angels, it's this. At the end of chapter 1, we need to get to work. Go. Quit standing around. That was, that was the message from the angels. Let's go. Let's get busy. Let's go. 
And that's what they did. Let's look at chapter 2, can we? It's probably my favorite chapter in the book of Acts, and I want us to read the first portion of it. It'll be up behind me here on, on the screen. This is Acts 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues of fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together. And they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in our own native language? Uh, Parthenians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocking said, they are filled with new wine. <laughs> I love this story. This is, it's just crazy and awesome. I just love it. First thing we see is the Holy Spirit does come, right? So what do we take from that? Jesus keeps his promises. Right? That's what he tells the, the disciples. The Holy Spirit's going to come in a few days. And what happened? The Holy Spirit comes in a few days. Jesus keeps his promises. Now I want to just kind of break down Pentecost. We did this in the other message, message, but I want you to hear it today. Now the word Pentecost means 50 days, and it's a celebration from when the nation of Israel has, has been slaves in Egypt, okay? And they leave uh, Egypt. Well, before they left Egypt, you know that kind of how they got to leave Egypt was the Passover. The death angel comes into Egypt, and for those who had covered the door of their homes with the blood of the lamb, Moses told them, God told Moses to tell them, the, the death angel would pass over that home. But if they hadn't put the blood on, on the door frame, then the firstborn of that family would die, right? And who knows how many thousands of children died. Well, it was because of that final plague and final curse that Pharaoh lets God's people go. So they leave, and 50 days later, they find themselves at the foot of Mount Sinai. Now, this is important because at the foot of Mount Sinai is when God makes his covenant with his people. This is an, this is an important deal. This is an important time. You can read about it in Exodus 19. Uh, one of the verses in Exodus 19 says this, the mountain was covered in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. <laughs> well, listen, we can't comprehend what was going on in this moment. All we know is that there's a nation of Israel at the, fo at the foot of a mountain, and they look up to the top of the mountain, and all they can see is fire resting on the top of the mountain. And Exodus 19 says, there's smoke and fire, and yet the Lord in his care for us, it always shows up in Scripture. He says, don't let anyone touch the mountain. And don't even let your animals touch the mountain, because if they do, they'll surely die, and I'll have to deal with this. That's what Scripture says. 
And so he's being cautious. Make sure people are staying back. Well, God asked for one man to come up. Remember? That man was Moses. Moses got to come and represent the people. He goes up the, the mountain. And as he gets up there, God gives him his message for the people. Now, I want you to notice something this morning. There's a lot of similarity in this story in Acts 2 and this moment in Exodus 19. I want us to look at them just for a second here. What are the similar signs? Well, first thing we see, there's a lot of wind. There's a lot of natural craziness going on in the weather. At the top of the mountain, there's fire and smoke and wind, and God's presence is there. In Acts 2, what do we see? The very first phenomenon we see is this mighty rushing wind coming in. Sounds, uh, you know, I don't know what, like a train or like something that's just, it got everyone's attention. Same kind of presence is being known. That's what I'm trying to show you. God's presence is being made known, but there's something different that happens here. In Exodus 19, the, the fire stays on top of the mountain and says, don't touch it. You can't stand my holiness, it'll kill you. We don't see that in Acts 2, do we? Why? Because when Jesus was crucified on the cross, the Bible says that the veil in the temple was torn from top to bottom. Amen? And that represents our ability to access a holy God through the sacrifice of his one and only son. <laughs> so what's so beautiful here? The wind comes in, but we don't see a fire that's going to kill people. Instead, we see fire begin to touch every believer. Almost as if God is saying, the veil was torn in my presence, because the fire represented the presence of God. My presence will now be with every single believer. Isn't that beautiful? So good. This fire is not harming them. It rests on them. And instead of giving one man a message, Moses, I've got a message, I want you to take it to the people. He says, with my presence comes a message. So as fire sits on every believer, as the relational presence of God, so does a message to be given to the world, right? It's the same. Just wanted you to see that similarity. Now, you'll, you may remember that we were talking, Tim Keller's a guy that I love and read and, and listen to, and he made this, this comment about the relational presence of God and fire. And he gave us some examples, and, and I want us to look at those again this time around. He talked about the covenant with Abraham. It was a blazing torch and smoke in Genesis 15. He talks about Moses, when God speaks to Moses through the burning bush. Remember that? It's the fire is representative of his relational, special relational presence. And then we see here at, at Sinai, fire and smoke. We see in Israel, in the wilderness, a pillar of fire that he leads the people by night. Every single believer is now, now has within them the relational presence of God. Everywhere you go, believer, you have this special relational presence of God in you. Isn't that good? Mm. His message is for every believer to go. So there was, there was three phenomena that happened in chapter two. We see the wind, 
we see the fire, the relational presence of God, and then we see this amazing thing happen in languages, right? Holy Spirit begins to speak through the disciples in other languages. This is not gibberish. These are known languages, and Luke, in his uh, doctor-like um, detail for us, lists out every culture and language. It's beautiful. I love it. And you might remember that I said this before. Listen, every language that was spoken that day, and there are many, every single language represented a different miracle of God. I can just imagine in my mind all these disciples speaking these different languages, and maybe somebody who speaks this certain language, he, he wants to get closer to the guy speaking that language. People are moving around and shifting until they can be in front of the one speaking their own language. And as they hear the message that's going forward, it's a message about the glory of God, of who he is, how he must be known. And God gives this message at Pentecost. Pentecost was a celebration of that time I mentioned, those 50 days. And so God knew that this a, a massive amount of people would be in Jerusalem from all over the known world, and this was the perfect time to get his message out. And so the miracle happens and all these languages are speaking to the glory of God and who he is. And God is showing up and showing off in Jerusalem in this moment. You might remember the thing I said in that message. I said, you know what? This is perfect, uh, a perfect example of why God wants his church to be a multicultural church. Just think about it. As God is, is doing the miracle right in this moment, as he's building the foundation of what the church is going to be, what does he show us? He shows us that the gospel is very, the very first time the gospel is preached, it's done so in a multitude of languages. Last week was awesome, wasn't it? I, I just loved sitting here. I, I, I didn't know who to listen to. I couldn't understand Elvis, but I, I wanted to listen to them both. I loved it. And the idea was, we don't want to show that one language has precedence over another. One culture doesn't have precedence over another. Right? And so this was this beautiful opportunity for us to even experience a little bit of what was going on in Jerusalem. God's spirit and his presence is saying to us as a church and every church, I want my church to be a multicultural church. I want you to value every language, every tribe, every tongue. And I want my gospel and my glory to be known and spoken in those languages. That's what we see, right? That's what we see. That's what we did last week, and I just I thought it was amazing. That's why we need to be the most culturally and racially diverse in this church that we can be, because I believe, I believe it brings glory to God, and because the Spirit has established the importance of every tribe and every tongue. Now listen, this next section of Scripture, Acts 2, uh, 14 through uh, 41, I'm not going to read this, I encourage you to go back and read it again, but I want to remind you of what's going on there. This is where we see Peter <laughs> become the rock, right? See, we, we remember seeing Simon cower at a fireplace. He didn't even remember, or, or he didn't at least want to admit that he had been with Jesus. And Jesus told him, he said, you're going to fail me. You're going to fail me three times, and when you do, the rooster's going to crow. Remember that? And Simon's, he's a tough guy. No, I won't. No, I won't. Never, may it never be. 
And then what do we see in just a few hours? We see Simon fail Jesus because he keeps his promises. He, he knows. Simon fails, and at that third failure at the fire, one of the Gospels tells us that Jesus and Simon make eye contact. Can you imagine? The feeling of guilt and shame. So that, that's Simon. But now we begin to see him take on the identity of who Peter is. Named from Petra, which means rock. After the Holy Spirit has come and these languages have taken place, I don't know if things may settle down. Peter, in his ever-important uh, ability to take a, take a look at a situation and read it, he knew, you know what? This is a perfect opportunity to give the gospel of Jesus I don't think everybody said, hey, who's going to speak at the thing down on the street? I don't think they took, you know, turns. I think just Peter and the gifting that God had given him stood up in boldness. And we see in this moment Peter turned into the rock. And we see him basically stand up in the spirit boldness and proclaim who Jesus is. The first thing he says would have been devastating to this audience. And you just imagine the silence, the hush, like what's about to be spoken after what's just taken place. And Jesus says, uh, Peter, I'm sorry, says, Jesus Christ was and is the Messiah. And you would have heard, you would have heard gasps. And he goes and proves that point through this section of Scripture. He shows from, the, from Psalms uh, 1, 10 and, and from Psalm 16 and from the prophet Joel that there have been many prophecies about who Jesus is and what he would bring and what he would do and Peter because he was a part of this uh, faith system of, of Judaism he knew exactly how to say it and what to say to help show them that these prophecies had now been fulfilled and so when he said Jesus was the Messiah they would have known what he was saying but it wasn't just enough for, for Peter to say he was the Messiah. He said this. He said, listen up. Jesus was the Messiah, and you killed him. You murdered the Messiah. And you think the gasp was big then. There might have been a hush in the room as the seriousness and the weight of what he had just said fell on their hearts. And the scripture says they were cut to the heart. Let me just remind you of something. If you call yourself a Christ follower, a Christian, there has to be a time in your life where you've been cut to the heart. It's not just about choosing a, a section of beliefs, a, a section of, I, I choose to believe this, this type of thing. No. There has to be a point in your life where you can go back to and you know that God has convicted your heart of sin. And you have been cut to the heart, to the deepest part of who you are. And you go, God, I'm a sinner. I have failed you. I have broken your law. I have been wrong. And I need you to forgive me. In that moment, the seriousness of what Peter was saying fell on these people. And they were cut to the heart. And the Holy Spirit had left. 
He's moving in the hearts of these people. What does Peter do? He calls them in that moment to open and public confession. This would have been dangerous. Because the very people who were shouting, crucify him, crucify him, now are been cut to the heart. And now they're saying, what do we do? And Peter says, this is what you do. I want you to come forward in an open public confession and I want you to be baptized. I want you to repent of your sin and I want you to be baptized. And for these people to actually walk through those steps would have been a big deal. For many, it was a death sentence. But when you're cut to the heart and you know the truth of the Word of God, of who He is and who you're not, things change. And that's the idea. That's the whole idea of repentance, that things change. Some didn't receive the Word that Peter gave, but those who did were baptized and added to the church. And so that day, the church secretary went from 120 to 3120. 3,000 people saved and baptized. That was a good day at the church in Jerusalem, right? Let's read this next section of Scripture in Acts 2. 2.42 says this, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all who had any need. And day by day, attending the temple together, and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is my favorite part of the whole book. I just love this. This is the blueprint for the church. When I dream about what South City can be, when in my heart I just, I just dream and I think about what kind of church God are you growing here and what do you want us to look like, that's it. Why? Let's go through it. Because they're devoted to each other. They're consistent to each other and the church. Everyone was affected by what was going on. There were no people on the fringe that just didn't get it and kind of occasionally came. It says all were affected. They shared their resources to meet each other's needs. They loved each other. They gave to each other. They lived in authentic relationships. They were real people. In fact, one of our core values at South City is authentic relationships. That's who we want to be. They walked life together. They spent time in each other's homes. They were generous and happy. Isn't that interesting how that goes together? When we're generous, we're happy. And I'm not just talking about money. I'm talking about time. I'm talking about giving yourself away. Giving your resources away. When we're generous, we're happy. They were also authentic worshipers. And this is what I mean by that. It wasn't just together or in the church or, or when they were doing church things. Even when they were living their lives outside of each other. It says that, that uh, they, they had favor with the people. And the only way to have favor with the people is because they were being the same people in the church and with each other as they were outside of the church, away from each other. They were being authentic worshipers. And this is what happened as a result. The church grew, and people were being saved day by 
day. And I don't know about you, but that's the kind of church I want to be a part of. That's the kind of church I want South City to be. And you know what? If that's the kind of church we become, listen, every single day God will do something in us. I, I believe it. That's what we see in Scripture. It's like the Lord saying, this is what can happen. And I believe the word with all of my heart, and I believe that's what can happen at South City Church. Now I want to just take a quick second here and talk about something that's important to us as a church. The way we live out this Acts 2, 42 through 47 passage is in our small groups. That's the way we do this. So they're important to us. So this is what we want to say. Listen, we believe that you need to be involved actively in Christian community. Caring for other people, being cared for, being prayed for, walking your life in confessional, accountable relationships that are authentic. That's what we believe. And the way we try to give you opportunity to do that is through Sunday school and through small groups. So if you're not involved in, in one of the small in Sunday school uh, meetings that we have on Sunday mornings, get involved in a, in a small group. We have them around the city. We have them here at the church. We would love to help you get involved. But listen, being involved in a small group is how we become that church I just read about. Am I making myself clear? <laughs> Small groups are not just a fad. It's not just some little way of trying something. No, this is how we are the church. South City will not just be a church with small groups. South City Church will be a church of small groups. We'll be made up of small groups. That'll be how we live the life God is calling us to live together in small groups. Chapter 3, very quickly, and we're going to wrap up today. Chapter 3, I want us to notice, out of this crazy scene of the move of the Holy Spirit, 3,000 people baptized in one day, Incredible. We see Peter and John, the beginning of chapter 3. These friends from way back, they were old fishing buddies, and they had a fishing business together in Galilee, and they walk out of this crazy scene. I'm not sure where they're going or what they're about to do. They're headed to the temple, but I'm, I'm assuming they're going to preach the gospel. So they have a plan, but something happens, doesn't it? They don't just walk into the temple and start preaching. They walk into the temple... And they don't preach immediately, do they? What do we see? They're stopped by someone in need. They're stopped by a beggar who's begging for alms at the beautiful gate. And he needs money. And he sits there every day, and he would have been well known. People would have walked by him every day in the temple and recognized his face, his situation. The man says in chapter 4, uh, the Bible says that he is actually over 40 years old. He's been crippled his entire life. He would have been recognized. So let's read together. Acts 3, verse 3 through 7 says this. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms, and Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. He got something he never expected to get. And what happens in this moment, instead of money, he, he's healed. His legs, in one instance, they get strength. And the Bible says he doesn't just slowly get up. He jumps up. So God's miracle is not just healed legs and new legs. It's coordination and balance all in the same time. So he jumps up and he's standing and he can't contain himself. Can you picture it? He's jumping around the beautiful gate. 
He's leaping around the beautiful gate. And listen, what's so cool about this is in Scripture, those Jews would have known the book of Isaiah. And this is what it says in Isaiah 35, 6. It says, when Messiah comes, you'll see this. You'll see the lame will leap like deer. So even, even in this miracle, God is fulfilling messianic prophecy of what's happening right now. This is, this is amazing in this moment. What happens? Peter begins to say, don't look at me. This is not my power or strength. Or, or, I didn't do this. This has been done in the name of Jesus. And so listen, I say to, the, to us as a church this morning, we can't just preach a message. We can't just go and try to send a message to our community. You know why? Because mercy gives us credibility to preach a message. They didn't just go preach. They showed mercy to this man. And in doing so, he's jumping around, and what happens? A crowd begins to gather. <laughs> a crowd begins to gather and show up. And he's still jumping around. He, I mean, he's cutting a rug, you know? He's excited about his new legs. The crowd shows up, and Peter does what he does. He, he notices the crowd and says, hey, this is a good opportunity to tell people about Jesus. And that's exactly what he does. He gives them a very similar message gives people the opportunity to respond to Jesus. And the Bible says in chapter 3, they were filled with wonder and amazement. You know, I believe when, like you, when I come to work, I got things on my mind. I got a list of things I got to do, and I'll, I'll be lucky to get half of them done. And like you, you got a million things going, and you got your mind set on where you're going and what you're going to do. But you know what? When God places someone in your path, may we have the humility, and the awareness to stop and say, God, it's not just about what I want to say or what I want to do today. Whoever you place in my path, may I give them mercy. May I give them Jesus. That you would just say, God, I don't know what they need. Maybe it's a couple of bucks. Maybe it's just a hug. Maybe it's just a moment to listen. But whoever you place in my path, would you help me to make them priority? That's what we see Peter and John do, right? They care for this man, and their mercy gives them credibility to preach a message. And they, they preach a message, a great message, and, and people come to know Jesus. Peter contextualizes the message by saying, hey, brothers, in other words, hey, I'm one of you. I get what you're struggling with. You see these miracles, and it's not me. It's been done in the name of Jesus. And God begins to do a work in their hearts. And he does the same thing that he always does. Peter calls people to repentance. You know, I was just thinking about this this week as I was praying. When we have an event, <laughs> my prayer is that uh, in every single event, we would have the awareness of Peter to call people to repentance to call people to a relationship with Jesus. God forbid that we would have a crowd of people who may not know him and we don't tell them about the hope we have in him. All right, I want to close this morning, and some of you have a bulletin, and I just want you to have a couple of fill-in places on that bulletin. And this is, this is what it breaks down to this morning for what we've learned in Acts 1 through 3. You can follow along with that bulletin. It says this. So we see this morning... 
that Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection is true, right? He proved it with his, his own body. He proved it for 40 days. And his disciples knew it, and they gave their lives because of its truth. His commandment is to go, make disciples through the power of the Holy Spirit. And as believers, we're called to repentance first, to be cut to the heart, and to know that God is calling us to a very serious uh, life in him, to be called to repentance, to change. He calls us to discipleship, to a community and a family called the church, and to care for the least of these as we take this amazing story of Jesus to the world. And it's a, <laughs> an amazing story it is. And I'm excited to get back into it as we continue to preach through all that God did in the book of Acts. And we begin to think about, Lord, all that you want to do in the book of South City Church. This is what's so cool. I don't know if you know this or not. Listen, sometimes we read the Bible like it's old and history. But you know what's cool about the book of Acts? It's still going. It's still going. You have been written into the book of Acts. Because we have not reached the world with the gospel of Jesus. And so when we read that, that verse, Acts 1-8, that he's filled us with power to take, to be witnesses, to take to the ends of the earth, that's you. The book is not over. We have been written into the story. And we will continue to find our place in it in the weeks to come. Next week we'll start chapter 4. I want to pray for us. Father God, thank you so much for your kindness. Thank you for this story. Thank you for the beauty of the church. Thank you for the beauty of the church. Lord, you know that we couldn't live this life alone. We couldn't do this alone. God, you, you've called us to be together. And there are moments that it's difficult, God, and so you've even given us directions of how when it gets difficult, just to go to each other, just to ask questions, just to be humble, just to love, just to serve. But God, you have designed this, this way. So may we learn from the historical account of the book of Acts. And may we apply it, Lord God, to the church you want to create and build in Little Rock, Arkansas, called South City Church. And may we be uh, established and built in love and designed and led and lived in because of your grace, because of your goodness, because of your power that you have given to us to reach our Judea, Southwest Little Rock, and our Samaria, Little Rock, and greater Little Rock, and the uttermost parts of the world, God, that we would go in your power and make you known. In Jesus' precious name.